in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 4, you want to keep your finger in that chapter. Um, what we, where we've been so far, uh, there's been four sermons, and the first one was the wait sermon. So even though they had seen the resurrected Jesus and understood this, the, the meaning behind his death, burial, and resurrection, they weren't ready yet. And Jesus said, don't do anything, wait. And what they were waiting for was the Holy Spirit. And so the, that's the second sermon that Noah preached. And that's when the Spirit comes at Pentecost and indwells the, the Christians. And then they're ready. And uh, they literally proclaim the gospel in languages that they had never studied um, for the purpose of getting it to all the different people that were in the crowd during Pentecost. Um, the third sermon was we called Tribe. And so what we see is that these new Christian converts just weren't individuals and individual Christians just bouncing around, they actually were drawn together into a community, and uh, they were very devoted to one another, to the Word, to worship, uh, to uh, prayer. And then we see this uh, Spirit-empowered new community on mission, and this was the fourth sermon, talking about the spread of the gospel. And, um, and so it's literally, they're seeing new people become Christians on a daily basis, and uh, so they're on mission, and, and they're on mission for the most part in the, in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and so they're seeing um, people uh, on an ongoing basis becoming Christians. And that right there would be, that'd be a nice little sermon series right there, those, those four things, weight and spirit and tribe and spread. And we could say, okay, Rich Top, go get them, right? Um, but what we see is that there needed to be something else stirred into that community on mission to really get it going. <laughs> and what really gets it going, and you see this at different times in the book of Acts, is persecution. It's persecution. Um, persecution of the church is not something we talk about too much uh, in the West. Uh, being a Christian costs us very little in comparison to a lot of other places. Um, the, it, it costs a lot to be a Christian in Iran or in North Korea or Syria or Afghanistan or Nigeria or China. Most of the world, honestly, um, it costs a lot more. Here's, here's just one, one example. Uh, Zhang Wenqi, uh, who, uh, this is on the Voice of the Martyrs um, uh, website, which they are just like constantly putting out, hey, this person needs prayer. This person is being incarcerated. This person has, has, has experienced the death of a spouse because of persecution. And uh, it's a great, great ministry and website to, to understand what's going out there in the, in, in the world and to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. But this, this guy um, uh, is ethnically Korean, living in China and ministering to North Koreans as they come across the border. And so at first, he is just helping them with food and some housing and just taking care of some basic needs. But he's a Christian, so he starts telling them about Jesus. And then some of those North Koreans begin to become Christians. So then they're coming across the border, not, not just to, to get a hot meal, but they're coming across the border to study the Bible. Well, the government of China finds out about that. And they arrest him, and he's been in prison since November 2014. This is almost 10 years. 
that he's been kept uh, in custody for you know, helping these North Koreans uh, with basic needs, but also to share the gospel with them. And so this is not uncommon. This is kind of stuff is happening all over the world in all kinds of countries. Most of it we don't even uh, know about. And again, in the West, that's not really what we expect. We, we don't expect to be persecuted in any kind of like infringement on our rights. We're just going crazy that we've been persecuted, right? Um, what we see in the early church is that they experienced some really, really difficult persecution, and that Jesus had prepared them for that. Um, in Matthew 10, which is one of the most lengthy chapters of Jesus, like training up the disciples and sending them out, uh, he says this, verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Jesus is talking to them about persecution as if it is a given. He's saying when this happens, this this, this, uh, brother will deliver brother, right? Children will deliver uh, parents over to the authorities. And this preparation that was given to the disciples, I think it's stuck. And we know that it's stuck because of stories like Acts 4, because of the way that these guys handle uh, persecution. So context for Acts 4 is Acts 3, and what happens in Acts 3 is that Peter and John heal a man on their way to, to afternoon prayer at the temple. The man is well known. And so when people see this guy walking around, they know something very significant has happened. Something supernatural has happened to heal this man uh, of his uh, paralysis. And the people are so excited about, about it that they change their, their prayer plans at the temple and they follow Peter and John to the temple courts and they want to hear more. Peter sees the crowd gathering, and uh, it's not lost on him. He, he says, okay, this is an opportunity to preach the gospel. And so he does. And we looked at that in the sermon that we called the, the spread, right, in Acts chapter 3. Now, it, it, it doesn't seem like it could be going any better, right? Like the first sermon that, that Peter preaches, like 3,000 are saved, and in this one, I think 2,000. So, I mean, talk about a preaching career. This is pretty amazing. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I could, yeah, if I, that happened to me, I, it, it would probably just crush me. That is so hard to even comprehend, right? But he has these thousands of people that are responding to uh, his, his sermons. Now, what we also find is that the religious leaders are getting upset. And as they, as they see the Christian movement growing, they're not happy about it. Now, here Luke describes what's happening so in Luke, or in Acts chapter 4, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. That doesn't sound good. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men was about 5,000. 
So Luke mentions three different groups. He mentions the priests. So they would have been in charge of the day-to-day operations of the temple. Uh, They're in charge of the, the singing, the praying, the teaching, the sacrifices, and the offering. Um, Peter and John are threatening their livelihood because people are taking a detour from the temple activities to the temple courts. They're like, yeah, priests, we're done. We're going to go talk to these guys who just healed a, a, a paralyzed man. He also mentions the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were a particular party of religious leader in that day, and they were in charge of the temple. So they're concerned about this because the temple activities are being disrupted. Uh, They also do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's one of the the distinctives that that makes the Sadducees different than the Pharisees is that they are adamant that the resurrection of the dead is not a thing, and the Pharisees actually believe in the resurrection of the dead. So it really annoys them that they're teaching this resurrection from the dead. So not only are they a threat to the temple operations, but they're even a threat to their doctrine. Like they're they're un, un, undermining what they think is true. And then he mentions the captain of the guard. Um, the temple had its own armed security, and they were Jewish. Um, partly this was because you couldn't have a Gentile just strolling into the temple and keeping security. So they'd made a special arrangement with the Romans that they could actually have armed guards. Um, So they they could take people into custody, they could actually adjudicate certain cases, and they could actually give a sentence. Um, Although they they weren't really supposed to give the death sentence, which is why they even take Jesus to the Romans um, instead of killing him themselves. Now, while Luke is writing here in Acts 4 that these, these dangerous people are coming upon them He's also mentioning, oh, and 2,000 more people became Christians. This is also a theme in Acts where you see mounting persecution against the church and the continued spread of the gospel side by side. And you're going to see this again and again in the book of Acts, mounting persecution and then continued even advancement of the spread of the gospel through the church Now, they keep Peter and John in custody overnight, and in the morning, they have an interrogation. So verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, this is a really scary moment. These are the same people that sentenced Jesus to death. And I'm pretty sure this is partly why Luke is naming names. Because if you've read the Gospel of Luke or the other Gospels, you know these names, Annas and Caiaphas. Those should be very familiar to you. And then there's a bunch of others, leaders of um, the priestly class. And the apostles know what these guys are capable of, right? So if you go back to like John 18, we can see a little window into how they operate. John 18, 19 says, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? 
Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Well, these guys function like the mob. Maybe you've seen some mobster movies. I'm not encouraging you to do that, but uh, perhaps you have. Um, And they will go to any length to maintain their power. They will intimidate. They will use violence. They will kill. They will do anything it takes to maintain their power. This is what Caiaphas says in John 11 about Jesus. Uh, Verse 49 says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. It's basically Caiaphas admitting, yeah, maybe Jesus is innocent, maybe he's not worthy of death, but it doesn't matter because of the the expediency of if we kill him, we'll be able to save our power base and save our nation as it, it currently is. And it is, it's very much like the mob. And Peter and John are well aware of what these people are capable of. Now, this seems like a good time maybe to keep silent, maybe to plead the fifth, maybe to say, I'm sorry, we'll never do it again. Or, or, or maybe um, think about it like this, like, like Peter and John are key leaders of the movement. Like if they get killed, how's that going to affect the movement? Like, like maybe... We ought to just keep our mouths shut so that we can live to preach another day. I mean, this is a, this is a serious and very scary moment. And Luke has kind of set this moment up for us, again, by naming names and, and, and describing the kind of pressure that these guys are under. And then in verse 8, we see what they do. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yeah, that is bold. That is bold. He preaches the gospel in the face of persecution. How does he do that? I mean, we know Peter. Peter's a coward. Peter denied Jesus not one time, three times. And now he's that? How is it that that happened? Well, Luke tells us Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And so with this new power that he's been given post-Pentecost, which is why Jesus told him to wait, (laughs) because if Peter was trying to do this without Holy Spirit power, he would be the same old Peter. 
But because of what the gospel has done in him, now and the, the, the filling of the spirit, he's able to be bold. So he, in that power, he alludes to the healing as a demonstration of the gospel. He doesn't just say, oh, isn't that cool? Kind of a cool healing, right? I mean, God did that. He doesn't just say that. He, he's saying, no, this is tied to the Jesus of Nazareth, right? He ties it to the gospel as a demonstration of the gospel. And then he expresses the explicit truth claims of the gospel. And even in somewhat of an indirect way is inviting them to put their faith in Christ. He says, there's no other name under heaven by which you may be saved. It's, it's a call to faith. Hey, guys, you too could cry out in faith and have salvation in Christ. Now, Jesus had actually trained his disciples to expect that the Spirit would empower them to do this, right? So Matthew 10, back to the training chapter, verse 16, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You want to sign up for that? I mean, it, yikes, that's scary. And then he says, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So he had been training them that when they're experiencing state-sponsored persecution, that earlier paragraph I read you is more family persecution, now he's describing state-sponsored persecution where they're using the power of the sword to take you into custody and bring you into an interrogation room, and he says, the reason that's happening is so you could bear witness of the gospel. And then he tells them, here's how you're going to do it. Verse 19 of Matthew 10 When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak and what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So they've been trained. Hey, persecution's coming. Some of it's going to be familial kind of persecution. Some of it's going to be cultural kind of persecution. Some of it's going to be state-sponsored where they're going to take you into custody and bring you into an interrogation room. And when those kinds of things happen, it's an opportunity to spread the gospel. And the Spirit is going to empower you to do it. And what happens is this Spirit-empowered like resiliency becomes a demonstration of the gospel in and of itself. So so, So the healing became a demonstration of of the validity of the truth claims of the gospel. And now their very boldness is going to become a demonstration of the validity of the truth claims of the gospel. Um, The fastest growing church on the planet right now is in Iran and Afghanistan. Isn't that crazy? Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, I think. But one is the spiritual resiliency in the face of persecution is a demonstration of the validity of the gospel. In this article uh, from Gospel Coalition, they write, the Iranian revolution of 1979 established a hardline Islamic regime 
Over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecution. All missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were, were banned and soon became scarce. And several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure and many feared it would soon wither away and die. But the exact opposite has happened. In the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries since Islam came to Iran. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands. Some estimate more than one million. According to the research organization Operation World, Iran has the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. The second fastest growing church is in Afghanistan, where Afghans are being reached in large part by Iranians. <laughs> That's some crazy stuff. It sounds like Acts, honestly. The, the place where the church is being persecuted the most is, is somehow reproducing itself at a rate much more quickly than Austin, Texas. And so there's, there's something to this uh, spiritual resiliency under persecution. Um, now, the, the Sadducees and the priests don't immediately put their faith in Jesus, but they are affected. So verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It's interesting. The healing, it doesn't say that they were astonished. Maybe they were. I, I don't know. But what, what they're astonished by is these very uneducated, common, some, some translations say ordinary, that's where we get this sermon series title from, Ordinary Church, it's from this verse right here. Um, this, this, uh, this Greek word translated uneducated, uh, agramatos, ah, in front of a word means without. They are without, uh, gramatos, education, right? But my favorite is the word translated common or ordinary is the, they are idiotes. That's right where we would say they're a bunch of idiots. They're idiotes. How can these idiotes speak like this? How can they speak with boldness and, and biblical insight and theological clarity? How is this possible? These are professional religious people. They have studied for a long time. They're astonished at what God is doing through a church of idiots. Right? So their best answer, I love this, for how these common, ordinary fishermen types can do this is that they have been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. Um, it, it's feeling similar to the verbal sparring that they did with Jesus. The way that they're handling the scripture, the way that they're boldly and unashamedly coming back at them, but doing so in a loving way, a respectful way. Like Peter even opens up, rulers, elders of Israel, right? He's, he's not being a jerk about it. 
He's being winsome. He's being respectful, but he's being bold, and he's being accurate. And, and, and so they're like, this feels, this feels like Jesus. The problem is that these words are not coming out of the incarnate, divine Son of God. They're coming out of this redneck fisherman who has no education. <laughs> and they're astonished. They're astonished. So they decide to have a closed-door conference, right? This is what we do. For good bureaucrats, you know, it's like... We're not going to talk about it out in the open. We're going to go have a backdoor conversation. And this is the conversation, verse 15. And it's kind of interesting to think about how does, how does Luke know that the conversation happened. I'll, we'll talk about that after the service. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This is another scary moment. This is a scary moment. They're commanding them, don't you ever speak of Jesus again. Right? Now, they don't mention any kind of threats, but I think that's kind of baked in, right? They, they can back up their threats. Now they have another decision to make. Do you just stay silent? Do you just kind of shake your head? Do you say, I'm sorry if you're upset? I mean, we'd like to live to preach another day. I mean, I, this, is a, this is like another moment where they have to decide what to do. Uh, this time, Peter and John... We see in verse 19, answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So yet again, they're bold. This time John's in on it, Peter and John. Um, it doesn't say they're filled with the Holy Spirit, but we're assuming it, the Spirit is still at work, giving them words to say, giving them boldness uh, to, to, to speak those words uh, with. And they further threaten them, but they can't get around the clear demonstration of the healing and how excited everyone in Jerusalem is about that healing. And so... Peter and John walk away without a scratch. Now, that's not always going to be the case, but it is in this first little taste of persecution. And what you're going to see in Acts, you're going to see it ramp up. You, you, you're going to see it go from just a, a scary interrogation to an actual flogging to actual killing people. Right? And, and it, it's just going to keep rising as we go through the book um, of Acts. So here's some thoughts as we think about how, how, what does this have to do with us. Um, so four things. So one is the place of persecution, the place of persecution. In God's design, in God's unfolding story, um, we spend a lot of time, myself included, worried about upsetting people with controversial topics, right? We're not scared about 
getting, you know, interrogated or killed or whipped or something, but, but we're scared, we're afraid, we're worried. Um, and that's, for, that's for good reason, right? I mean, our views on certain topics are considered dangerous, right? I, I, I mean, it's, it, for some, it's like you Christians, you're like public enemy number one because of some of the beliefs uh, that you have. Um, and what we, I think what we see here and this speaks to us uh, as well, is that, is it possible that being truthful about what we know, even controversial topics, could become an opportunity for gospel proclamation? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. There's, there's, there's something about being bold about something that is, that is risky, that is scary. And when we do that, demonstrates the validity of the truth claims to some degree. And when we're like dancing around every controversial topic and just saying, you know, Jesus loves you, and, and uh, let's not talk about the, the, the stuff that the culture is really upset about, um, it doesn't really demonstrate the gospel. Right? And, and American churches went through a whole couple decades of the seeker-sensitive movement, and, and some of that was really helpful because it was like, think about people outside the church and how they feel when they come into church. Like, absolutely, we need to do that. Um, but it also taught the American church to just not talk about anything that was upsetting to the culture at large, and that was a huge mistake. That was a huge mistake. Because those things actually become a platform for proclaiming gospel truth. And so to, to, to lean into those hard conversations, again, lovingly, respectfully, uh, in, a, in an informed way, biblical way, absolutely. But leaning into those instead of um, uh, running away from those. Um, well, here, here's a little, this is an example. This is a great story uh, Maybe some of you have heard of this woman, Rosaria Butterfield, who uh, she was in Syracuse, New York, at Syracuse University. She was a, a feminist professor. She was a, a lesbian living with a woman. Um, she was very active in the, the LBGTQ uh, community in Syracuse. And the Christian uh, ministry, the Promise Keepers, came to town in Syracuse. And the Promise Keepers is a men's ministry, and uh, they had the big stadium event, and uh, she wrote a scathing article in their newspaper about Promise Keepers. And she says, and this is in her book, The, the Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, is her, one of her books, and it's about her testimony. Uh, great book. And she says, uh, she says, I got two kinds of mail. One was people patting me on the back for how awesome I was that I wrote this scathing article against the Promise Keeper ministry. And the other was Christians that were just like rabid animals coming after me with their very hateful uh, mail and emails. She said, but one, one of, the, one of the correspondences was different. And it was a pastor in Syracuse who reached out and said, uh, I would really love you to come to my house for dinner because I'd just like to get to know you and find out more about what your thoughts are on Christianity. And she said yes. <laughs> she went and had dinner with this pastor and his family, and she loved it. And uh, they then started a friendship 
And they would just ha- had her over, literally hundreds of times, she says in the book. And over that, the course of that time, they spoke truth to her in love about the hardest of topics. Eventually, she became a Christian. And now she's writing Christian books, and she's a mom, and she's you know, a professor, but now for Jesus. Like, and, and that happened because that family was willing to lean into persecution as opposed to going, man, the world's just going down in flames, and the people are so against Christians, and so horrible, but instead moved toward, toward the persecution and did it with boldness and with love and with truth. So, place of persecution. Second, the power of the Spirit. Um, we need that reminder. For a genuine Christian, we are not alone in this. We are not alone in these difficult conversations. The Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of us and can give us the words and the boldness and the countenance. I mean, all of it can give us what we need in these conversations. Um, what I've learned is that I don't feel very bold in all the time leading up to the conversation. I, I, I feel fairly like I'm going to really screw this up still after all these years of ministry. And then when I'm in the moment and I'm speaking the truth, Holy Spirit, he shows up and he's, he's empowered me to do this. Right? Um, I had two different bank managers who... Um, were gay men who were, were interested in talking about spiritual things. And I went to lunch with each of these guys. And they, they knew who I was, and they knew what I stood for. And we had these brutally honest conversations about the Bible, about b- biblical sexuality. And I, in both those conversations, I just thought, I, I am going to, st- I'm going to step on a landmine, and, and this is going to go really poorly. And in both of those conversations, it ended with, thank you for having this conversation with me. Literally thanked me. Right? And I don't know how many times that's, that's happened in my, in my life with people that I'm thinking, this is going to really go badly. <laughs> but then the Holy Spirit shows up. Now, sometimes it does go badly, okay? So this, it's not 100%. Um, but the Spirit is willing to give you the power that you need. Not just the words, but even your countenance, how you approach someone, um, he, he can do it. And, and it doesn't happen until you just do it. You just show up and give it a try. Um, I was watching, I don't know if you guys have seen this, the posting of the OU uh, softball team, the, the girls that won the national championship. And they're at ESPN, and they're being, uh, they're, they're, they're being uh, interviewed. And I think it's the three captains, if I remember right. Um, every one of them, in a really appropriate, truth-filled, winsome way, speaks about the gospel <laughs> in regard to their team. And, their, and it wasn't like, you know, oh, Jesus gave me a touchdown, and now I'm awesome. But it was actually like... Biblical, and it was right on the money. And I just thought, these ladies are 19, 20 years old. They're staring into the the lights of ESPN, and they're just delivering the goods. How'd that happen? Holy Spirit, man. And now it's all over social media. It's awesome, right? So the power of the Spirit. 
The primacy of the gospel, the primacy of the gospel, uh, what, what we see in, in Acts over and over again is no matter what the issue is, no matter what the conversation is, they get it to the gospel, the explicit truth claims of the, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and the significance of, of that. Um, so again, that goes back to these controversial things that are hot buttons in the culture. We're going to talk about those things. We need to tie them into, root them in gospel conversations. Um, in one of those conversations that I thought is really going to probably go poorly um, came from uh, uh, a young girl who had become a Christian in our church, and uh, she's a teenager, really growing, um, but her dad was so unhappy with her, and you know he was like, I'm an atheist, and so every time she was at his house over the weekend, he would just like pepper her with questions and tell her how stupid she was, and, um, and it, was really, it was really upsetting to me, um, and I just, I said to her one day at church, I said, well, if you're comfortable doing this, tell your dad. I would like to speak with him. If he has questions, you know, it was kind of like pick on somebody your own size, right? So um, that, that, that conversation happened. Two months or so passed. I forgot about it. She walks up to me at church and she says, uh, my dad wants to talk with you. I was like, oh my God, what have I done, you know? Um, so I'm like, great, let's do it. So we set up a time. He comes, it's just me and him. Uh, we're at the church. And uh, he starts pulling out his questions. And they're all the, what you would expect. You know, all, all the kind of controversial, cultural hot buttons. And he's like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I was just giving him the gospel every time, right? And I was answering the question, but I was answering it with the truth claims of the gospel. And about the fifth question, he asked the question, and then he says, wait a minute. I think I know what you're going to say. And he repeated the gospel back to me in answer to his own question. I was like, yeah, that's it. That's, that's exactly what I would say. And that was the end of the conversation. He was like, okay, <laughs> we're done here. He's like, and this is the quote. He's like, you're so consistent. Right? And that was a good moment for me. I'm like, yeah, thank you, Jesus. Like, this was a Holy Spirit kind of empowered, grace-filled moment, um, which then led to more relationship with this guy. This guy ended up in my backyard multiple times, talking about all kinds of things, right? And, and so leaning in to persecution, to the difficult conversations, trusting the Spirit is going to help us, and then sticking to the gospel, sticking to the gospel. And some of that is working on what sometimes is called gospel fluency, right? So, you know, a, a, a topic of sexuality comes up. Can I address that in the gospel? The topic of, you know, money and or corruption in the church or what, whatever, like these hot buttons, when they come up, can I address these with more than just kind of therapeutic language or just sort of, you know, um, just advice? Can I ground my answer in the gospel? And I, I think the gospel is the answer to every question, right? But it's not like a little presentation, you know, like... like it, it actually is answering the question, but it's answering it from a gospel-centered framework. And I think this is partly what we'll be working on on Wednesday nights as we go through that book, um, Evangelism as Exiles. The fourth thing is God's use of ordinary people. 
ordinary people. Um, God's church is a bunch of idiotases, right? I mean, if you're thinking, um, I'm fearful, I don't know what to say, I, I, I just don't think I can do this, you're perfect for the job. You're perfect. This is what God does. He takes those that are unlikely and he empowers them with his spirit and he does something astonishing through them. This is his way. Um, I love this little passage from 1 Corinthians as Paul is talking to the Corinthians who had gotten a little big for their britches, kind of prideful, and he says this to them. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Come to think of it, not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You just see the Corinthians going, what? I'm low, I'm not of noble birth. I'm <laughs> yeah, that was who you were, Corinthians. But now, you've been filled with the Spirit and given gospel grace, and God's chosen you to be His ordinary church. We're reminded of this when we come to this table, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I've, I've reflected on this a lot. Um, this moment where Jesus is with his idiotases, also known as disciples, and they are a mess that night. I mean, you know, Judas is betraying him, and um, James and John are like asking him if they can be on his right and his left, and you know, sort of be like vice president and secretary of state in the new kingdom. Um, he's having to wash their feet because no one's willing to be a servant and actually do the foot washing that's supposed to be done before they do dinner. Um, and they're all going to like run like, like scaredy cats once he is arrested. And Peter, his number one guy, is like going to deny him three times. I mean, it's a bad night. These are not top shelf leaders, right? And he looks at them and he, said, he takes the bread and he, he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to them and he says, take eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He knows if the, the folks in that room are going to be transformed into the kinds of people that God intended them to be, he's going to have to go to the cross so that they can be given gospel grace, so that they can be saved from their sin, saved from their selves, saved from their society. It's the only way that they're going to be able to be the kind of people that he's called them to be. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. His vision is not that he's just going to save individuals, but he is going to gather them into a covenant community of common, ordinary people. And, and that gospel grace applied by the Spirit's power is going to raise up a church 
And that little, little fledgling church is going to bring the gospel to the nations. I mean, it even brought it to us here in 2023. And so this table is a constant reminder of that, that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, gave it. So let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, you give us everything we need to equip us to be the church, to be on mission. We confess to you that we oftentimes don't feel like we had everything we need. And we're scared, we're weak, uh, we're, we're apathetic, we're unsure. And yet, God, you make us whole. You forgive us. You fill us with your spirit. You make us new. And you don't just make us new individuals. You make us a new community, a new tribe. We're so grateful, God, for that. Thank you for the work you've been doing to make this church a new tribe, to work alongside other churches in the city in order to reach Austin, but not only that, to reach the nations. And so we... We see you doing it, <laughs> and, and we are asking you this morning to encourage us yet again and strengthen us yet again uh, for this week as you send us out to be the common, ordinary missionaries that we are, and we pray people would be astonished, not, not because of who we are, but because of who you are in and through us as we interact with the many, many people here in the city. We pray your blessing over this time, over taking the bread, taking the cup, and uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.